Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 48. With our book today, Up From Slavery, by Booker T. Washington. From the Dover Thrift Edition, of Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. We'll read a few selections today for our celebration of Black History Month here on the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. Chapter 1. A Slave Among Slaves. I was born a slave on a plantation in Franklin County, Virginia. I am not quite sure of the exact place or exact date of my birth, but at any time, at any rate, I suspect I must have been born somewhere and at some time. As nearly as I have been able to learn, I was born near a crossroads post office called Hales Fort, and the year was 1858 or 1859. I do not know the month or the day. The earliest impressions I can now recall are of the plantation and the slave quarters, the latter being the part of the plantation where the slaves had their caverns. My life had its beginning in the midst of the most miserable, desolate, and discouraging surroundings. This was so, however, not because my owners were especially cruel, for they were not, as compared with many others. I was born in a typical log cabin, about 14 by 16 feet square. In this cabin, I lived with my mother and a brother and a sister till after the Civil War, when we were all declared free. Of my ancestry, I know almost nothing. In the slave quarters and even later, I heard whispered conversations among the colored people of the tortures which the slaves, including no doubt my ancestors on my mother's side, suffered in the middle passage of the slave ship while being conveyed from Africa to America. I would have been, I have been unsuccessful in securing any information that would throw any accurate light upon the history of my family beyond my mother. She, I remember, had a half-brother and a half-sister. In the days of slavery, not very much attention was given to family history and family records, that is, black family records. My mother, I suppose, attracted the attention of a purchaser, who was afterward my owner and hers. Her addition to the slave family attracted about as much attention as the purchase of a new horse or cow. Of my father, I know even less than of my mother. I do not even know his name. I have heard reports to the effect that he was a white man who lived on one of the nearby plantations. Whoever he was, I never heard of his taking the least interest in me or providing in any way for my rearing. But I do not find a special fault with him. He was simply another unfortunate victim of the institution which the nation unhappily had engraved upon it at the time. And from another selection in chapter one, A Slave Among Slaves, one may get the idea from what I have said that there was bitter feeling toward the white people on the part of my race because of the fact that most of the white population was away fighting in a war which would result in keeping the Negro in slavery if the South was successful. In the case of the slaves on our place, this was not true, and it was not true of any large portion of the slave population in the South where the Negro was treated with anything like decency. During the Civil War, one of my young masters was killed and two were severely wounded. I recall the feeling of sorrow which existed among the slaves when they heard of the death of Mars Billy. It was no sham sorrow, but real. Some of the slaves had nursed Mars Billy. Others had played with him when he was a child. 
Mars Billy had begged for mercy in the case of others when the overseer or master was thrashing them. The sorrow in the slave quarter was only second to that in the big house. When the two young masters were brought home wounded, the sympathy of the slaves was shown in many ways. They were just as anxious to assist in the nursing as the family relatives of the wounded. Some of the slaves would even beg for the privilege of sitting up at night to nurse their wounded masters. This tenderness and sympathy on the part of those held in bondage was a result of their kindly and generous nature. In order to defend and protect the women and children who were left on the plantations when the white males went to war, the slaves would have laid down their lives. The slave who was selected to sleep in the big house during the absence of the males was considered to have the place of honor. Anyone attempting to harm young mistress or old mistress during the night would have to cross the dead body of the slave to do so. I do not know how many have noticed it, but I think that it will be found to be true that there are few instances either in slavery or freedom in which a member of my race has been known to betray a specific trust. As a rule, not only did members of my race entertain no feelings of bitterness against the whites before and during the war, but there are many instances of Negroes tenderly caring for their former masters and mistresses who for some reason have become poor and dependent since the war. I know of instances where the former masters of slaves have for years been supplied with money by their former slaves to keep them from suffering. I have known of still other cases in which the former slaves have assisted in the education of the descendants of their former owners. I know of a case on a large plantation in the South in which a young white man, the son of the former owner of the estate, has become so reduced in purse and self-control by reason of drink that he is a pitiable creature. And yet, notwithstanding the poverty of the colored people themselves on this plantation, they have for years supplied this young white man with the necessities of life. One sends him a little coffee or sugar, another a little meat, and so on. Nothing that the colored people possess is too good for the son of old Mars Tom, who will perhaps never be permitted to suffer, while any remain on the place who knew directly or indirectly of old Mars Tom. I got to admit, I've avoided talking about this one for a while. I am a person who, like many black people in America, can trace my ancestry, at least on my father's side, as well as my mother's through my grandmother, to the original sin of America. Booker T. Washington mentions the Middle Passage in that selection that we read, and the Middle Passage brought across um, somewhere between, I believe it was somewhere between 20 to 50 million um, slaves from Central, uh, West, and even East Africa between the 1500s, the end of the 15th century, all the way up to the time in which it was abolished by the English first in the beginning of the 19th century and then was, well, then had the knife put in it as a system, at least in the Western world, by the death of 750,000 mostly white people in America between 1860 and 1865. 
I don't talk about slavery on the podcast, and I don't really reference my race too often because I don't really think it's relevant because we are free. And by we, I mean the black people who happen to have descended from slaves in America. Booker T. Washington is an interesting character. His literary life was such that, uh, well, he wrote up from slavery um, as a series of, um, well, as a series of articles um, that were published consecutively in a magazine called The Outlook. And he utilized the budding uh, system of public relations through periodicals and the growing literacy of a post-Civil War America to spread the word about the Tuskegee Institute, um, which we'll talk a little bit about today. Booker T. Washington um, wrote and lived at a time when black America, or black people in America, um, had a choice to make post-slavery. Which direction were they going to go in? Were they going to go in the direction of industry? Um, were they going to go in the direction of becoming a race of people who were independent um, of the white people in America? Or were they going to go in the direction of bitterness, envy, strife, and the bigotry of lowered expectations? In the year 2023, we are almost 200 years since the past the Civil War, not since past the Civil War. Um, of course, the Civil Rights Act was passed uh, due to the death, uh, due to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in late 1960s. And we are almost 50, almost 60 years away from that, which of course killed Jim Crow and finally completed, in one respect, Reconstruction. But laws don't change hearts and minds. They don't cure envy and jealousy, and they don't change perspectives. Culture does that. Literature does that. And of course, leadership changes hearts and minds. This tension between learning and labor and grievance and envy is summed up in the work of both Booker T. Washington and another author who we will be reading on the podcast this month, W.E.B. Dubois. And I can say with some certainty that black people in America, at least the ones involved in politics and taste-making in our culture today, have definitely gone down the W.E.B. Dubois road. Much to probably Booker T. Washington's endless eternal dismay from wherever he is looking down at us. He believed in the moral value of learning, as well as the moral value of labor for black people. He believed in the power of practical labor, he actually says this in his book, to lift up the black man and woman, quite frankly, into being respected um, by white people and being welcomed into American society. The challenge presented in Up From Slavery 
both an autobiography and a moral screed, if you will, and of course a PR book for the Tuskegee Institute. The challenge presented in Up From Slavery is best summed up, I believe, in the question asked infamously by William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson in the movie Braveheart, when he asked his enslaved Scottish brethren, who had been enslaved for hundreds of years by the English on their own island, of not proving that black people in America weren't the first people in world history to be enslaved, nor would they be the last. He asked them this infamous question, what will you do with your freedom? The hardest task, and Booker T. Washington confronts this directly and up from slavery, is to take responsibility for your own life as an individual under freedom, regardless of the disparities in the system, and to not let grievance eat at your heart like acid. There are lessons for leaders here, and we will explore those lessons, and we will state them outright here on the podcast today. Back to Booker T. Washington, back to Up From Slavery. We're reading, of course, from the Dover Thrift Edition, of Up From Slavery, a Dover publication um, from Mineola, New York, um, published in 1995, and it is an unabridged republication of the work first published in book form by Doubleday, Page, and Company, New York, 1901, with a new introductory note specifically prepared for this edition. We're not going to read that today. We always talk a little bit about where the book comes from that we are reading on the podcast. And I quote directly from Booker T. Washington and up from slavery. I pity from the bottom of my heart any nation or body of people that is so unfortunate to get entangled in the net of slavery. I have long since ceased to cherish any spirit of bitterness against the southern white people on account of the enslavement of my race. No one section of our country was wholly responsible for its introduction. And besides, it was recognized and protected for years by the general government. Having once got its tentacles fastened on the economic and social life of the Republic, it was no easy matter for the country to relieve itself of the institution. Then, when we rid ourselves of prejudice or racial feeling and look facts in the face, we must acknowledge that, notwithstanding the cruelty and moral wrong of slavery, the 10 million Negroes inhabiting this country who themselves or whose ancestors went through the school of American slavery are in a stronger and more hopeful condition materially, intellectually, morally, and religiously than is true of an equal number of black people in any other portion of the globe. This is so to such an extent that Negroes in this country, who themselves or whose forefathers went through the school of slavery, are constantly returning to Africa as missionaries to enlighten those who remain in the fatherland. This, I say, not to justify slavery, on the other hand, I condemn it as an institution as we all know that in America it was established for selfish and financial reasons and not from a missionary motive, but to call attention to a fact and to show how providence so often uses men and institutions to accomplish a purpose. When persons ask me 
in these days, how in the midst of what sometimes seems hopelessly discouraging conditions, I can have such faith in the future of my race in this country, I remind them of the wilderness through which and out of which a good providence has already led us. Ever since I have been old enough to think for myself, I have entertained the idea that, notwithstanding the cruel wrongs inflicted upon us, the black man got nearly as much out of slavery as the white man did. That the hurtful influences of the institution were not by any means confined to the Negro. This was fully illustrated by the life upon our own plantation. The whole machinery of slavery was so constructed as to cause labor as a rule to be looked um, upon as a badge of degradation, of inferiority. Hence, labor was something that both races on the slave plantation sought to escape. The slave system on our place, in a large measure, took the spirit of self-reliance and self-help out of the white people. My old master had many boys and girls, but not one, so far as I know, ever mastered a single trade or special line of productive industry. The girls were not taught to cook, sew, or to take care of the house. All of this was left to the slaves. The slaves, of course, had little personal interest in the life of the plantation, and their ignorance prevented them from learning how to do things in the most improved and thorough manner. As a result of the system, fences were out of repair, gates were hanging half off the hinges, doors creaked, windows panes were out, uh, plastering had fallen but was not replaced, weeds grew in the yard. As a rule, there was food for whites and blacks, but inside the house and on the dining room table there was wanting that delicacy and refinement of touch and finish which can make a home the most convenient, comfortable, and attractive place in the world. Withal, there was a waste of food and other material which was sad. When freedom came, the slaves were almost as well fitted to begin life anew as the master, except in the matter of book learning and ownership of property. The slave owner and his sons had mastered no special industry. They unconsciously had imbibed the feeling that manual labor was not the proper thing for them. On the other hand, the slaves in many cases had mastered some handicraft and none were ashamed and few unwilling to labor. And then we're going to flip a couple of pages. And we'll go to the end of the chapter covering his boyhood days. And I'm going to read this piece here. As the day, as the great day drew nearer, and this is referring to the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the war, as the great day drew nearer, there was more singing in the slave quarters than usual. It was bolder, had more ring, and lasted later into the night. Most of the verses of the plantation songs had some reference to freedom. True, they had sung the same verses before, but they had been careful to explain that freedom in those songs referred to the next world and had no connection with life in this world. Now, they gradually threw off the mask and were not afraid to let it be known that the freedom in their songs meant freedom of the body in this world. The night before the eventful day, word was sent to the slave quarters to the effect that something unusual was going to take place at the big house the next morning. There was little, if any, sleep that night. All was excitement and expectancy. Early the next morning, word was sent to all the slaves, old and young, to gather at the house. In company with my mother, brother, and sister, and a large number of other slaves, I went to the master's house. All of our master's family were either standing or seated on the veranda of the house where they could see what was to take place and hear what was said. There was a feeling of deep interest, or perhaps sadness, on their faces, but not bitterness. As I now recall the impression they made upon me, they did not at the moment seem to be sad because of the loss of property, but rather because of the parting with, with those whom they had reared and who were in many ways very close to them. The most distinct thing that I now recall in connection with the scene 
was that some man who seemed to be a stranger, a United States officer, I presume, made a little speech and then read a rather long paper, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. After the reading, we were told that we were all free and could go when and where we pleased. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed her children while tears of joy ran down her cheeks. She explained to us all what it meant that this was the day for which she had so she had been so long praying, but fearing that she would never live to see. For some minutes, there was great rejoicing and thanksgiving and wild scenes of ecstasy, but there was no feeling of bitterness. In fact, there was pity among the slaves for our former owners. The wild rejoicing on the part of the emancipated colored people lasted but for a brief period, for I noticed that by the time they returned to their cabins, there was a change in their feelings. The great responsibility of being free of having charge of themselves, of having to think and plan for themselves and their children seemed to take possession of them. It was very much like suddenly turning a youth of 10 or 12 years out into the world to provide for himself. In a few hours, the great questions with which the Anglo-Saxon race had been grappling for centuries had been thrown upon these people to solve. There's an old Chris Rock joke. I don't think he probably tells this joke anymore. Where he uh, he mocks the idea of emancipation a little bit. And the absurdity of emancipation. By pointing out that slaves didn't really have anywhere to go on vacation. You can go on YouTube and find him riffing on this joke because really where were they going to go is sort of goes the punchline of this Chris Rock joke to the well that's what Booker T. Washington is getting at in Up From Slavery when he talks about emancipation the challenges of emancipation were more than just material here's your freedom Good luck and goodbye. Now, there will be people who, of course, will push back on this idea, and uh, they started pushing back on it right at the beginning. Well, no, right at the beginning. Well, yeah, right at the beginning of emancipation and the end of the Civil War. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois pushed back on this, as did many others. But the challenges of emancipation from Booker T. Washington's perspective and from mine the challenges of emancipation are spiritual, more so even than moral or material. And they lie not merely on the shoulders of the slaves, but they lie on the shoulders of the slaveholders. Freedom always comes with a moral imperative toward responsibility, and this is something that leaders need to understand. Freedom also comes with a moral imperative towards accountability for your individual actions. Also something that leaders should understand. Booker T. Washington got this. He, he understood this innately. And in his book, Up From Slavery, his biography, I guess, such as it were, he labored. He talks about the journey. 
in laboring to build himself into a personal example that others could model in his race, as he put it, about how to answer the challenges of emancipation and to do so in a way that would reflect an American character. But I think it goes even merely beyond that. So if you're listening to this podcast from another country and you have very little understanding of the depth of America's original sin, let me frame it for you this way. The challenges of responsibility and the challenges of accountability, the moral imperative toward them that lie in freedom exist for everyone who is made free, whether that freedom is emotional freedom, psychological freedom, or even spiritual and material freedom. When you are free, you are not free to do as you will. But you are free to make a choice to do and to take on the roles that you want to take on. You're also free to accept the consequences of such choices, even as you head to the well. Back to the book, back to Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. So we're going to uh, move forward um, through his time of education um, and his experiences at the the Hampton Institute, uh, including his experiences, his struggles to get his own education and move himself up. And we're going to move into the section of the book that talks about um, setting up Tuskegee and teaching school in a stable and a hen house from Up From Slavery. On the morning that the school opened, 30 students reported for admission. I was the only teacher. The students were about equally divided between the sexes. Most of them lived in Macomb County, the county in which Tuskegee is situated and of which it is the county seat. A great many more students wanted to enter the school, but it had been decided to receive only those who were above 15 years of age and who had previously received some education. The greater part of the 30 were public school teachers, and some of them were nearly 40 years of age. With the teachers came some of their former pupils, and when they were examined, it was amusing to note that in several cases, the pupil entered a higher class than did his former teacher. It was also interesting to note how many big books some of them had studied and how many high-sounding subjects some of them claimed to have mastered. The bigger the book and the longer the name of the subject, the prouder they felt of their accomplishment. Some had studied Latin and one or two Greek. This, they thought, entitled them to special distinction. In fact, one of the saddest things I saw during the month of travel, which I have described, was a young man who had attended some high school, sitting down in a one-room cabin with grease on his clothing, filth all around him, and weeds in the yard and garden, engaged in studying French grammar. The students who came first seemed to be fond of memorizing long and complicated quote-unquote rules in grammar and mathematics, but had little thought or knowledge of applying these rules to the everyday affairs of their life. One subject which they like to talk about and tell me that they had mastered in arithmetic was banking and discount, 
but I soon found out that neither they nor almost anyone in our neighborhood in which they lived had ever had a bank account. In registering the names of the students, I found that almost every one of them had or one or more middle initials. When I asked what the J stood for in the names of John J. Jones, it was explained to me that this was part of his entitles. Most of the students wanted to get an education because they thought it would enable them to earn more money as school teachers. Notwithstanding what I have said about them in these respects, I have never seen a more earnest and willing company of young men and women than these students were. They were all willing to learn the right thing as soon as it was shown them what was right. I was determined to start them off on a solid and thorough foundation so far as their books were concerned. I soon learned that most of them had the merest smattering of the high-sounding things that they had studied. While they could locate the desert of Sahara or the capital of China on an artificial globe, I found out that the girls could not locate the proper places for the knives and forks on an actual dinner table or the places on which the bread and meat should be set. I had to summon a good deal of courage to take a student who had been studying cube root and banking and discount and explain to him that the wisest thing for him to do first was thoroughly to master the multiplication table. The number of pupils increased each week until by the end of the first month there were nearly 50. Many of them, however, said that as they could remain only for two or three months, they wanted to enter a higher class and get a diploma the first year if possible. At the end of the first six weeks, a new and rare face entered the school as a co-teacher. This was Ms. Olivia A. Davidson, who later became my wife. Ms. Davidson was born in Ohio and received her preparatory education in the public schools of that state. When little more than a girl, she heard of the need of teachers in the South. She went to the state of Mississippi and began teaching there. Later, she taught in the city of Memphis. While teaching in Mississippi, one of her pupils became ill with smallpox. Everyone in the community was so frightened that no one would nurse the boy. Miss Davidson closed her school and remained by the bedside of the boy night and day until he recovered. While she was at her Ohio home on her vacation, the worst epidemic of yellow fever broke out in Memphis, Tennessee, that perhaps has ever occurred in the South. When she heard of this, she at once telegraphed the mayor of Memphis, offering her services as a yellow fever nurse, although she never had the disease. Ms. Davison and I began consulting as to the future of the school from the first. The students were making progress in learning books and in developing their minds, but it became apparent at once that if they were to make any permanent, if we were to make any permanent impression upon those who had come to us for training, we must do something besides teach them mere books. The students had come from homes where they had had no opportunities for lessons which would teach them how to care for their bodies. With few exceptions, the homes in Tuskegee in which the students boarded were but little improvement upon those from which they had come. We wanted to teach the students how to bathe, how to care for their teeth and clothing. We wanted to teach them what to eat and how to eat it properly and how to care for their rooms. Aside from this, we wanted to give them such a practical knowledge of some one industry together with the spirit of industry, thrift, and economy, that they would be sure of knowing how to make a living after they left us. We wanted to teach them to study actual things instead of mere books alone. There is an idea in our postmodern uh, post-blue-collar, post-farm, post-manufacturing culture that work doesn't give you meaning. And it's weird because there's all this work that needs to be done. 
Um, and it may not necessarily be physical labor, maybe the labor of caring or emotional labor, but it is labor nonetheless. And there is an idea um, that did not begin in our culture, as we can see with Booker T. Washington, with that selection we just read there in Up From Slavery. There's this idea that the intellect will free us from work. Um, this is sort of laid out um, in his chapter, uh, chapter 9 of Up From Slavery. I'm going to read a brief selection from this where he's talking about the Christmas celebrations um, during uh, that he observed um, in um in Tuskegee in Alabama, um, and it led him to some conclusions. I'm going to read very briefly. He says, while I was making a Christmas visit, I met an old colored man who was one of the numerous local preachers who tried to convince me from the experience Adam had in the Garden of Eden that God had cursed all labor and that therefore it was a sin for any man to work. For this, for that reason, this man sought to do as little work as possible. He seemed at that time to be supremely happy because he was living, as he expressed it, through one week, and that would be the week between Christmas and New Year's, that was free from sin. Work is not evil. I want to be very clear about that. Work has been with us since the beginning of the creation. Adam was placed in the garden to work in the biblical corpus and work was turned by the fall into something that was hard rather than easy but work work's been here since the beginning work is not evil by the way here's what is evil working without getting paid is evil that's what makes slavery evil whether it is in Asia or all the way to the gates of Auschwitz. But there's another idea here embedded in Booker T. Washington's thoughts that leaders need to grab a hold of and need to hold on to. It is this idea that just getting information without putting the acquisition of it in the appropriate order is a waste of the knowledge. It's a waste of the information itself. Sure, you can understand and study French. You can learn how to balance a P&L statement. But if you don't know your fractions and you don't know your multiplication tables, you Googled for what exactly? This is the difference, and we're seeing this more and more in our time, and leaders need to pay attention to this. This is the difference between being merely literate, where you can read the words on the page and having actual comprehension of what the words on the page mean, and being able to critically think about the words and their impact and their consequence, and of course their application to real life. We have more literate people than ever before with more access to knowledge than ever before right now in the United States of America than any other country or civilization in history. And yet, how many of those folks would sit on the ground Googling on their phone for some obscure information while not putting their hands to labor to pick up the filth all around them? To create a moral foundation of trust between people, work demonstrates that quality, effort, and creativity 
along with critical thinking and comprehension, it demonstrates that the moral foundation of trust is more than just about doing stuff. The moral foundation of trust is about taking the knowledge that you have, applying it in practical ways to benefit everyone, slave or free, for the purpose of building the kingdom. slavery. Once again, it's the Dover Thrift Edition. We're moving on to chapter 11 as we round the corner here, making their beds before they could lie on them. By the way, there is a version of Up From Slavery that has an introduction from Wayne LaPierre, uh, who is, um, or at least was, I don't know if he currently is, uh, the either the president or the CEO, and I think they're probably the same role in his case, of the National Rifle Association. That'll bake your noodle. Chapter 11, making their beds before they could lie on them. A little later in the history of the school, we had a visit from General J.F.B. Marshall, the treasurer of the Hampton Institute, who had had enough faith to lend us the first $250 with which we with which to make a payment down on the farm. He remained with us a week and made a careful inspection of everything. He seemed well pleased with our progress and wrote back interesting and encouraging reports to Hampton. A little later, Ms. Mary F. Mackey, the teacher who had given me the sweeping examination when I entered Hampton, came to see us, and still later, General Armstrong himself came. At the time of the visits, these Hampton friends, the number of teachers at Tuskegee had increased considerably, and the most of the new teachers were graduates of the Hampton Institute. We gave our Hampton friends, especially General Armstrong, a cordial welcome. They were all surprised and pleased at the rapid progress that the school had made within so short a time. The colored people from miles around came to the school to get a good look at General Armstrong, about whom they had heard so much. The general was not only welcomed by the members of my own race, but by the southern white people as well. This first visit which General Armstrong made to Tuskegee gave me an opportunity to get an insight into his character, such as I had not before had. I referred to his interest in the Southern white people. Before this, I had the thought, I had had the thought that General Armstrong, having fought the Southern white man, rather cherished a feeling of bitterness toward the white South and was interested in helping only the colored man there. But this visit convinced me that I did not know the greatness and the generosity of the man. I soon learned by his visits to the Southern white people and from his conversations with them that he was as anxious about the prosperity and the happiness of the white race as the black. He cherished no bitterness against the South and was happy when an opportunity offered for manifesting his sympathy. In all my acquaintance with the General with General Armstrong, I never heard him speak in public or in private a single bitter word against the white man in the South. From his example in this respect, I learned the lesson that great men cultivate love and that only little men cherish a spirit of hatred. I learned that assistance given to the weak makes the one who gives it strong and that oppression of the unfortunate makes one weak. It is now long ago that I learned this lesson from General Armstrong and resolved that I would permit no man, no matter what his color might be, to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him. 
With God's help, I believe that I have completely rid myself of any ill feeling toward the Southern white man for any wrong that he may have inflicted upon my race. I am made to feel just as happy now when I am rendering service to Southern white men as when the service is rendered to a member of my own race. I pity from the bottom of my heart any individual who is so unfortunate as to get into the habit of holding race prejudice. The more I consider the subject, the more strongly I am convinced that the most harmful effect of the practice to which the people in certain sections of the South have felt themselves compelled to resort in order to get rid of the force of the Negro's ballot is not wholly in the wrong done to the Negro, but in the permanent injury to the morals of the white man. The wrong to the Negro is temporary, but to the morals of the white man the injury is permanent. I have noted time and time again that when an individual perjures himself in order to break the force of the black man's ballot, he soon learns to practice dishonesty in other relations of life, not only where the Negro is concerned, but equally so where a white man is concerned. The white man who begins by cheating a Negro usually ends by cheating a white man. The white man who begins to break the law by lynching a Negro soon yields to the temptation to lynch a white man. All this, it seems to me, makes it important that the whole nation lend a hand in trying to lift the burden of ignorance from the South. Where you were born is not where you are bound to end up. This is one of the bigger things that we can take as leaders from up from slavery. Um, there's very often an idea of determinism that sometimes permeates our thinking. And if we're not careful as leaders, we can really wind up in a space that um, that is dominated by this determinism dominated by this nonsense, dominated by ridiculousness, right? And when we think about determinism, when we think about the concept of determinism, when we think about the concept of sort of this idea that we are just going to, the things are just going to sort of just happen to us based on external forces, that are around us, we wind up in a space where we surrender our agency to circumstances. And Booker T. Washington never did that. He never surrendered his agency to circumstances. He also never surrendered his circumstances to envy. He never surrendered his circumstances to uh, the desire to seek vengeance. Instead, he surrendered his desires, he surrendered his impulses to advancing people, to inspiring people, to engaging as a role model. He had a choice to make, and he chose a particular path. By the way, not everybody can choose this path. Some people are too eaten up. Some people coming out of generational chattel slavery some people who have experienced discrimination, I've seen this in my own life directly, are so consumed by the poison of envy, distrust, and anger that if you licked their heart, it would poison you. And you have to make a choice. 
if you're going to actually lick their hearts. The other dynamic that is involved in Up From Slavery that leaders may find a little bit uncomfortable to deal with, but it is definitely a dynamic that is there, is Booker T. Washington attempted to lead from a Christian perspective. He tended to, he, he, he wanted to actually be Christ-like, right? And God, and this is a concept that you get from certain parts of Judaism, and I think it applies here when we're thinking about the advancement of a race in a particular culture. God may save your race collectively, but you as an individual in that race still have to work out your own path. You still have to work out your own salvation. And quite frankly, that's what freedom is for. That's the theology of freedom, which makes it part of the theology of leadership. No one owes you a life. No one owes you an outcome. No one owes you a set of circumstances. Instead, you have to do the work to build it and to maintain it yourself. Numbers are, well, they're very interesting. As we take a look at 2023, we can see that sets of choices among a race of people has led to particular outcomes. This is controversial to say because, remember I already mentioned that God may save a race, but the individual has to make a decision. Individual agency has led the 41.6 million African Americans, the majority of whom have descended from those slaves that Booker T. Washington also descended from. That 41.6 million, only 30% of them have a college degree. The majority of those with a college degree are in management, but the vast majority of African Americans in the United States are in either the service industry or in the blue collar industry and have attained no college degree at all or only some college and just barely graduated high school. Now, when you break that down even further, African-American women outstrip African-American men in colleges by a factor of almost three to one. And that gap, that educational attainment gap, is growing. This creates disparities in marriages and in relationships. This creates disparities in industries. This creates disparities in systems. This is not due to racism. And this is not due to systemic prejudice. This is due to individual choices. At least that's what Booker T. Washington would say, right? That's what he would assert, right? He would assert that knowledge without practical labor and with that practical labor being of efficiency and quality 
<laughs> Without those two things being united together, your educational attainment is meaningless. You can have a lot of fancy intellectual words and a lot of fancy intellectual ideas, but until you take action, until you until you accept responsibility and accountability for your choices, well, then you're no better than the slavery you, well, maybe that you didn't reject, but that you came out of. You're just, your chains are just on you in a different kind of way. What will you do when you're free and away from Pharaoh? I think of the book of Exodus, right? When Moses and the Israelites leave Pharaoh and begin to wander in the wilderness. One of the first things, and if you go back and read the biblical account, one of the first things that the, the ancient Israelites do is they yell at Pharaoh. Or not Pharaoh, sorry. They yell at Moses and they say to him, did you just bring us out here in the wilderness to die? Why don't we go back to Egypt? It was much better there in bondage. At least we were fed regularly. The challenge of the 21st century in America, among many challenges that leaders are going to be facing, is going to be the challenge of what do you do with your freedom? And for African Americans in particular, or black Americans, depending upon how you want to frame it, the challenge is that as blackness is shifting around and changing, as what it means to be black is shifting around and changing. I mean, let's be real. Barack Obama had a white mother, and yet he claims to be the first black president. But so also did Bill Clinton. As we shift around what it means to be black or what it means to be white, as race as a social construct continues to royal politically and culturally the country, individual African Americans or blacks, pick whichever name you like, have to, have to make a decision. They have to make some choices. They have to pick a path. They have to take action. This mirrors the fact of life for leaders in their organizations and their culture, regardless of what container that philosophy may come packaged in, you still have to take action. You still have to do something with your freedom to be a leader, your freedom to be responsible, your freedom to take accountability for others. And you have to do more than just know your work. You have, to do, you have to do more than just know your labor. You have to be the consciousness. The, the, you have to be the, the bellwether, such as it were, of your organization, of your team, and of your culture. Otherwise, you can't lead. Otherwise, you can't be a role model. Otherwise, you cannot move people. You can't even free them from the chains of slavery that they may be bound in in their own minds. And I know, I know, I know. You didn't sign up for that. You just signed up to make $200,000 a year and pay your bills, right? Not anymore. Moving forward for the next, I would say, 15 or 20 years, 
your choices as a leader matter. And I want you to hear this very clearly at the end of this podcast. Booker T. Washington would tell you this, and as will I. But so would any leader from George Washington to George Washington Carver. Your choices matter. You're not just a hobbit. You don't just get to make $200,000 a year and go home. The labor of leading people is the most worthy labor you can engage with people at this time in history right now. And your decisions and your actions, which lead to a particular, which lead from a particular set of choices, do matter. Go out and lead your people up from slavery. And well, that's it for me. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red Podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red Book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, Co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan, this is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast, 
That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents audio experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.